You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, a marketing and public relations specialist in the cannabis industry. As cannabis entrepreneurs in upstate New York stand by watching the slow rollout of dispensaries opening in New York City, they are wondering if they will ever get licenses approved for their neighborhoods. Today we speak to Joe Schaefer, a lawyer with Lippis Mathias Law Firm in Buffalo, New York. We talk about the legal injunction holding up social equity licenses and why they urgently need dispensaries to get open so that money flows through the marketplace and farmers and brands have a place to sell their products. Let's meet Joe. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks. Uh, well, like two inches of ice outside. Did you guys get the ice storm as well? No, nothing, actually. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have uh, tough, to, tough to take the garbage out this morning, to say the least. Two inches? That's a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't, God forbid anybody try to take their dogs for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I saw that you have a webinar coming up in a couple weeks, I think in a week or so. And yeah, I we're, it's, it's about two and a half weeks. We're doing it with, um, so once every, it, my goal is once a quarter. Um, I've been, when I got in, I guess I'll just kind of give you a little bit about me and, yeah. and how I got into what I do and, and, um, you know, my approach to kind of the cannabis industry just pro from up here in Buffalo. Um, but yeah, so I, I graduated law school in 2018 and I was a litigator for three years. And my, I ended up with a pretty big case uh, in, you know, end of 2019, right as New York was formalizing its, like the hemp program under, you know, it was kind of in between the Department of Ag and Markets as well as the Health Department. There was no MRTA and, you know, growing and selling hemp to make CBD edibles was going to be like the big thing. Mm -hmm. And we ended up in a pretty, pretty interesting litigation based on a term sheet, you know, a, a partially binding term sheet in the hemp industry. And I realized um, that if businesses were set up the right way my hope was that you know that my future clients would ultimately be able to avoid litigation such as this um i moved over into the well before i guess before i get into like the corporates like my transition to the corporate side of the law i, I think i always wanted to write contracts but that kind of showed me that cannabis was an industry not just an industry that was kind of percolating but it was something that would be taken seriously if god forbid anyone decided to pass a legalization bill um and then as the rumblings of the mrta came i i really downshifted and started talking to as many people up here in in buffalo in rochester just kind of in the western new york area that were doing this and I realized there were quite a few people I was I, I don't know if I was surprised but it was there were a lot of people who saw kind of this who were reading the tea leaves the same way that I was reading the tea leaves and I realized there were a lot of you know really good entrepreneurs who might need a little bit of legal help and there wasn't a there weren't a ton of people who were willing to take in um you know take a risk on the cannabis industry um you know and the 
the industry has always existed. It's just becoming legal now. And I realized that, you know, th there were a lot of people who I really wanted to work with and really wanted to help who needed someone. And, and, and frankly, in my first six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months in this, I was really the one being educated on the industry and, and not just the industry, but on the products and on how, you know, how retailers operate, where they've been successful, where they haven't. Um, and I realized that like the counselor at law element, I was an old, I've been, a, I, I've been coaching tennis since I've been 16 years old. It kind of appealed to the coach in me and realizing that it's not just about writing the contract. It's about dealing with the day-to-day -day challenges of an industry that changes by the minute. And I thought that I could be pretty good at that. Um, so I, I made the transition, the MRTA gets passed and I made the transition from litigation into the corporate side of the law. Uh, in September of 2021, right in the thick of things when like about a, a few weeks before the Cannabis Control Board had their first meeting. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it's been, you know, the rest is kind of history in terms of, I mean, look, it, we're very early on. I don't mean to say that there's like, you know, that I'm, I'm doing something crazy or anybody up here is doing anything crazy because nobody's really doing anything other than hopefully doing what's allotted within the scope of their licenses. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a wild ride these past like 18 months and you know, I'm having a lot of fun, but it's, I understand that, you know, it's, as you know, it's, it's incredibly challenging and our goal is just, you know, trying to keep everybody moving in the right direction, all boats rowing in the same direction and, and, you know, maintaining compliance with a compliance landscape that changes, like I said, by the minute which I applaud New York for, for all the attempts it's making, you know, at doing this and giving social equity entrepreneurs the head start. That's what I think is really important is giving anyone really a head start against the big corporate, um, you know, corporations that want to come in and get on, get in on the cannabis industry. Yeah. I think one of the most important things I learned about the MRTA once it was passed was that it, there, and it's it's written in the legislative history, the legislative intent, and in the I think the prefatory paragraph to any of the legal text, which is there are two main goals of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act: one, generate tax revenue for the state of New York, and two, give okay. back to those communities disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition over the years. Obviously, you know, think stop and frisk in New York City um, is the example that I always use, right? And uh, I think, you know, with respect to the card program, is there an incredible amount of frustration based on the Verisite case and the injunction that has resulted? Yes. And I, you know, people always, I always get pushed on, you know, whether the state should have done it in the first place and, you know, poor drafting. And if you look at the, the intent of the card program, I read it to be very in line with the intent of the MRTA. And while you can anticipate lawsuits as a, as a former litigator, I should probably know that you can, you can sue anybody for anything, whether or not, you know, it, it, there's actually a case there. And I mean, unfortunately for the state, I think the plaintiff in the case had good precedent from the district of Maine, which uh, district judge Sharp relied on in his opinion and ultimately the state paid for it at the district court level um I, I as i understand it there's you know similar cases have been tossed in california and other jurisdictions 
So, but you know, the opinion of of one of one judge relying on precedent from uh, it's I mean it's not binding precedent, but um, you know, precedent from a, a relatively close jurisdiction is what dictated this this first round of licensing. I'm interested to see what happens at the Second Circuit. I know this isn't the question you asked me, but I, I have a very circuitous way of thinking. So hopefully this is um, this is this is helping answer. I'm interested to see what happens at the Second Circuit because you're taking this out of the Northern District and you're putting this into, you know, effectively the 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 level below the United States Supreme Court in a circuit that has been historically liberal. Um, and that is, you know, it's venued in New York. They're one of the Second Circuit's venues is in New York City, which, you know, how can you not? And look, I, I was in New York in October and I saw the plethora of gifting operations, clubs, you know, pot shops, whatever you want to call them. And I'm like, this is so far away from the intent of what the MRTA was and the delay in the rollout of not just retail, but the delay in the rollout of everything opened the door for this gray market to evolve. And I think that OCM has an incredibly vested interest in enforcement um, in, in the next, let's just say through the end of 23, in the hope to eradicate this as look I, the, the legacy market will always be the legacy market right but it's it's this isn't the this may be the legacy market coming above ground i'm not sure i you know i can't speak for every single person in every single shop what i can say is that you know being oh. under the semblance of legality that's that's what ocm wants to make sure there's a reason there's going to be like an office of cannabis management licensed sticker on every dispensary that we're seeing in the four shops that are open you know, you can't verify if these are legacy operators um, operating these smoke shops in New York City. And uh, as an observer, I'm going to say they are not. Um, they are in some of some of the areas there. They are. There are people that have been selling. And but generally, the ones that are proliferating around the city right now are opportunists. And I don't feel sorry for them one bit. You know, basically, they're like the newspaper stands, the lotto stores. And uh, they they've just flipped it over. They they've actually just expanded their their product offering to be cannabis. Hmm. They are they are they are the you know the, the the newspaper stores that you went to all the time that that now have you know smoke shop on the outside and you know cannabis jars all over the place and and illegal products. Um, across the state, the OCM, the Office of Cannabis Management, has been having multiple you know, learning events and things like that um, here. Uh, is that what's happening in Western part of New York? Yeah. And, and so just a, a quick like status update on Western New York. So we have, you know, we have a number of folks who've been awarded uh, cultivation and, and conditional processing licenses. You know, it, it just, I was, you know, speaking to your hometown in Rochester, uh, you know, quite a bit of activity. I, I think Rochester has really been a standout in, but, uh, you know, I, I think I think the city of Rochester, there's just been a really good um, there's a really good community. Look, Rochester's a flower city, right? Like it's uh, there's a lot of great operators. We work with a few of them. I, I mean, I, I'd point out that uh, that that no wave. Um, I don't know if you if, if you got to see no wave, but no wave is, you know, a state of the art adult use processing facility in Rochester, right near the airport. Um, you know, full extraction capabilities. And, you know, they're, it's, they, they, no wave is just, they're, they're symbolic of, of how these guys are, 
how the city's really embraced it. They're trying to do this on a big scale, and there's a lot of people who are trying to go about it in the legal in a legal way. I also look at at Zach Sarkis from Flower City uh, Hemp or Cannabis. I know Zach's been looking at um, a cooperative license. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he's really an interesting guy. If you have a chance to speak with either the Noev guys or Zach from Flower City, um, they uh -huh. are. Really, really impressive people. And I, I'd also like to say um, Bristol Extracts, my friend Tim McDowell. Um, I don't know if you've met Tim, but, you know, Tim's Tim's a, a Colorado guy. Or I think he, he kind of uh, cut his teeth in the Colorado market. And then he's he moved to Rochester to help Bristol Extracts. And like there, you know, Tim, my friend Brian Lane, who works in No Wave, like these guys are are really on the cutting edge of making sure that when everybody thinks of New York and cannabis, it's New York City cannabis, right? Um, but you know, the New York cannabis market doesn't work without our growers and, and frankly, our processors in, in the like upstate or Western central North country capital region who have the land and can do this a lot cheaper than, than you can. And, and frankly have the space. Um, so there, there's a lot of licensing. I mean, here in Buffalo, I can speak to, to Justin Schultz and Sean Connors at Bison Botanics, um, who another licensed processor, uh, Chris Van Dusen and Kevin Halpin at Empire State Hemco or Empire Hemco, excuse me, uh, another licensed processor. So it, the, the processors really um, abound here. And, you know, we, we work with a number of cultivators, too. I mean, there, there's quite a few in the region who are really trying to grow great flower. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. There's 277 cultivators, uh, 40 processors um, and. 40 licensed processors and obviously the goal of, of giving at least 150 of the card licenses. So, I mean, we've, we've worked with card licensees, but unfortunately, you know, because the injunction applies to Western New York, Buffalo, Finger oh. Lakes, Rochester, central New York, Syracuse, the closest dispensary that we have is in Binghamton. Um, and it just, I want to say it opened last week. Uh, and, and, you know, Kalen Kastetter of Kastetter Cannabis Group, I don't know if you're familiar, Kalen, uh, I, I got to, I was lucky enough to work with Kalen for, for a couple of years, and he's a, he's a good friend in the industry, but I know yeah. Kalen worked with them, and that's, you know, his pride and joy, he's a Binghamton guy, so um, it's, you know, it, it's cool to see that we can do it up here. I, I know that there's a ton of frustration as we have a few clients who we help submit card license applications for who they don't they don't know the status of whether they're even going to be allowed right like if if this injunction lasts and the second circuit doesn't reverse you know there's a chance that the people who are supposed to get like the first crack at retail in in our area or my area of the world might be actually behind someone who's a just a permanent license holder with no equity so so that's basically almost three quarters of the state when you think of also population. I mean, it's, it's you said, is it Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, south a little bit, Finger Lakes, a little north? Yes. Yeah, so it, it literally the there's five enjoined regions and it's Western New York, which is like Erie County. It's like Niagara County, Erie County, Chautauqua, Cattaraugus and down. And then you go over like it, it enjoins Monroe County and down. So Finger Lakes is really the Rochester north and south. Syracuse is enjoined, Binghamton is not, and then the other two regions that are enjoined are, are Mid-Hudson. Um, and, and Brooklyn, that's right. Brooklyn being, you know, this the state's real, I mean, that's that's the one that hurts the most because I think they were, you know, the fifth ranked region on Barasite's uh, list of, of um, 
you know, ranking in regions. So to have like almost like a throwaway choice that's nowhere near the other three be now enjoying because the state allowed people to rank five and they only gave their first choice. I think that's really tough. I mean, I, I, I know it sounds silly, but like I have a lot of sympathy for OCM because I think like their intentions were good. It just Oh, yeah, their intentions were good, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with the rollout, including this injunction. But what do you, so I'm sorry, wh wh where do you think the injunction stands or when is the next uh, legal process for it? Or Yeah, the injunction, so the state, um, they moved to modify the injunction to only apply to the applicant's first ranked region, which in unfortunately for you, Pam, was was Rochester. It was it was the Finger Lakes region. So it would have unenjoined uh, Western New York, uh, Western New York, Central New York, Mid Hudson and Brooklyn because OCM's rationale for it was, well, we got there were 150 licenses available. There were over 900 applications. So because we had qualified applicants in every single region, we're only giving licenses to first choice regions. Therefore, the two through five rankings that conditional adult use retail applicants, retail dispensary applicants use don't really mean anything and thus give us back, you know, Verisites two through five ranked, aka unenjoined four of the five enjoined regions and we can fight about Rochester as necessary. And you know the district judge said, "Nope, you guys didn't do a good enough job. We don't like your, we don't like that argument." And so obviously, you know where the case sits right now is is the state has appealed the decision um, on the preliminary injunction. I believe uh, that's I think that's where the motion is. It's on the decision to to grant the injunction request. Uh, that's been that is now up at the second circuit, the court of appeals. Um, but I believe oh. that the court wants to keep discovery going in the case. Uh, so it's, you know, litigation, it's the procedure is difficult. And for, for a lot of the non-lawyers out there, the most important thing that's going on is the Second Circuit will decide the case, will decide the appeal in the next few months. Oh, my gosh, this sounds like it's going to go on forever. That's well, litigation. <laughs> litigation. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So... So I did notice, so this is probably spurring a, a lot of illegal shops. I saw on too many when I was in Rochester, you know, considering it's not like on every corner like it is here, five to a corner. But, you know, there definitely were the shops, but I did not see the product, the, um, you know, falling off the truck like I did I do here, you know, the, the shops that I went into, uh, one just had maybe two or three brands at the most and a little bit of loose flour. Another shop had, you know, a pretty good selection, but it, it's, it, it seems like there's not a lot of, uh, products making it to the shelves like it like it is here it's probably just a lot of loose flour that they're selling at the stores or do you see more shops proliferating because of this injunction and lack of legal shops do you see it getting more and more i can't speak to what's in the shops i'll start with that i i haven't been in i haven't been in any um i i am start I, it seems like there's you know i i live in the city and I work down, I work downtown and I live in North Buffalo and I know where, I think I know where most of them are. I haven't seen any new ones pop up. 
Um, we do have, at least in the city, we do have a few of like the trucks. And I know that, look, I mean, we oh. have three or four trucks in Buffalo. You guys have hundreds of trucks. I mean, I remember seeing like 40 of them were impounded or something like that one day. Um, but, you know, again, the issue ultimately is if there's no enforcement, you know, I, I see videos on LinkedIn. You can probably, you can educate me on this, Pam. Like I see like almost raids where you have people in FBI looking jackets. It's like a blue jacket with yellow office of cannabis management on them. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I, I don't know if these folks signed up for that when they, you know, when they took their job to be a state regulator, but you know, right. ultimately it's become a, a major, a major issue. Right. And um, so proliferation of the shops, they are, they exist. And I can only speak to Buffalo and, and a, a touch to Rochester, but um, to, to the extent that, that, it, that it is in the city, it's not, you know, I, I think I saw Mayor Adams had some comments about it this week and a goal to like eradicate all of them. Um, there hasn't been that level of attention to it because I frankly don't think that there are as you know, it, it's there enough to get its people's attention, but it, not enough to the point where it's almost obnoxious. Mm. That makes sense. Um, well, I think that I mean, I will tell you that I've and I've been quoted on this before. I think the day of the sticker shop has has come and gone. And I think people who are trying to open them up now, um, their calculus is wrong. If you were going to do it, you should have done it like April 1st, 2021 through December 31st, 2022, because that's the state was still figuring itself out and figuring out license. And, you know, the day that first retail, the, the day housing works open, right? The day smacked open, the day that, um, you know, uh, I think it's just breathe in, in, uh, oh, yeah, Binghamton, I believe yeah. is the name of it. The day that those things open, the state now has a vested interest in enforcement. Right. right. That's what I, yeah, exactly. And, so wherever, wherever the shops are opening, they're going to have to focus and show that they're cracking down because to support the dispenser, the legal dispensary. So, right. That's probably where we're going to start seeing that stuff happening. And it doesn't seem like it's going to happen soon up there. But so I guess what, what's interesting, like, you know, people waiting in the wings, this is what I'm always curious about is, like the entrepreneurs waiting in the wings and the farmers, like what what are the what are the farmers saying as far as what's coming out now, what they're preparing for, what they're worried about? I guess you're talking to a bunch of different cultivators and things like that. Yeah, I mean, besides waiting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they want to know where they can sell their stuff. Right. I mean, that's the biggest concern, and it's like you know, three shots. I, I think that the that the cultivators knew that there was some risk with respect to being, I mean, I think a lot, I, I think very few cultivators didn't understand that they were the state's guinea pigs, right? In, in, in conditional cultivation, conditional processing, this was going to be, as Chris Alexander said many times, they're building the plane as it flies. And I, I think everybody knew that, that was there was going to be some degree of that. I do not think anybody really anticipated no significant rollout of retail until basically the next growing season starts. And so we have a lot of, I mean, I haven't been to any of the dispensaries because frankly, the closest one just opened this week or last week and it's three hours away from me. But it seems like it's this, I know that there's an issue with um, 
with third party testing because the testing, you know, it's it's taking months to get products tested, flour tested, etc. And so there's only a few shops or excuse me, a few brands that have their brands in in the dispensaries and you're left with well there's 277 growers who grew primarily outdoor flour which needs to go to a process most of that is going to be processed and made into um you know some sort of of, of extracted product right yeah so i mean and the problem is because there's very little money in the market there's no money flowing from re from the consumer into the retailer how is a processor supposed to pay for a cultivator's flour if there's no money coming in right so like you know i i think that everybody's there there's a lot of Waiting is, I know you said other than waiting, what are they worried about? But they're worried about having to wait longer. And, yeah, and having to wait longer. The, the, these retail shops need to get up and running because these people need places to sell their products and we need money in the market. It's not that, I mean, you saw the lines wrapped around housing works, wrapped, I mean, even anywhere. They're all, they're crazy. I, I, I assume I these know. dispensaries are doing really well. Right, right, right. But the um, so out of the two hundred and seventy-seven cultivators, are are they? Do they also have manufacturing licenses? Can they process? Um... So there, here's here. The answer to your question is: it depends on the license that you own, right? So if you're a, if you're a licensed cultivator, you have in addition to the ability to grow uh, on up to an acre of flowering canopy. You have the ability to minimally, this is the conditional cultivation license or the AUCC license, adult use conditional cultivation. You have the oper you have the option to minimally process flour, which means to trim and bag your flour or to turn it into a pre-roll. You do not have the ability to effectively change the, the state of the flour. So oh, okay. you can't if you're a cultivator and you don't also own a conditional processing license, you the only thing you can do is you can grow it, you can trim it, you can bag it, or and you can turn it into a pre-roll. But the second that that needs to get turned into an edible or a beverage or a topical or you know any, any a tincture, that has to be done by a licensed processor. Okay. How about, um, are you seeing any cool products come up in the market where people are, you know, like the beverages or just, you know, specific edibles, like not even, not even gummies, but, you know, other edible type products or, you know, think, you know, things like that. Do you start seeing CPG products popping up or are they just kind of waiting in the wings and you're just really seeing the cultivators and the, you know, the manufacturers and things like that? I mean, I've been, we've been tasked with, you know, reviewing labels just as part of a compliance analysis. And that's really the only, like the extent as an attorney that I see stuff. Um, I, I think that, you know, look, I, I think you have to have a vested interest in the industry to do the jobs that we do. I'm a, I like beverages. I think beverages are really cool. Um, there's a lot of great beverages out there that I think are about to come online. Um, you know, a, a Western New York focused beverage uh, that I, I think is I think is going to do really well. And again, this is not a legal opinion. I'm not yeah. paid to say any of this. Yeah. Um, but weed water is uh, it's 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 an infused beverage, and I you know it's it they it was a um, weed water. It was a hemp compliant version of weed water that was out there, and I believe that weed water is going to be now uh, an adult use product. 
And that was like that that did incredibly well in my neck of the woods this summer when they they really came out with it. And, uh, you know, I I don't think it's going to slow down. If anything, I think it's really going to do well. But again, like, who am I to say? Like, yeah, no. Yeah. I just it's a cool product. And I think it's you know, personally, I think it's, it's neat. And, and that's, that's a testament. Yeah. I mean, that's just your personal consumer, you know, opinion. I don't know. I just, I, I it, it caught my attention. The marketing's really good. The cans oh. are really cool. Um, you know, but it's, again, it's, it's a compliant product and I, you know, I, I, I'm a picky consumer in the sense that I want all my stuff third-party tested. Like I, I, it's the reason why the adult use program is so attractive to people like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I was just curious. I'm I'm really looking forward to the drink mix um uh versions of, you know, powder mixes that you can just pour into a liquid and turn into a THC drink. So, I I'm Yeah, kinda... there's um there's a great company in in an established market. Um I don't know if you've heard of Good Feels in yes. Massachusetts. Jason Raposa who runs that company. He's I know that they make the stubby bottles, but um, I know they also sell the drink additives, which is kind of in a tincture bottle, which I think is, uh, it's a really, um, it's a creative solution, right. As opposed to using like a powder, yes. it's, you know, and, and, you know, Jason, I think will describe himself as kind of a mad scientist, right. He's, I think he has an engineering background and he's constantly tinkering and, um, you know, he's, I think he's, I, I think he has a really admirable product and he's a really, I think he's a really interesting guy, a great CEO, um, yeah. who's trying to do really cool things in the infused beverage market. So, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I want to see our East Coast beverages take off, right? There's been so many beverages that have done well on the West Coast. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what, you know, look, I, we're, we're so close to Vermont, right? And Vermont beer has taken over. It's not like, and the New York craft beer scene is really what's informed the cannabis law and the cannabis industry in New York State. So um, yeah. I, I, my, my hope is that our, 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 beverage makers will be just as popular in on the east coast as they are on the west coast i'm just always curious about the different entrepreneurs and and you know what's what's coming up in the product the product lineup so um because i feel like also another thing here that's happening is there's a lot of farmers markets or pop-up you know market events and i went to one just before the holidays just to see you know who was out there and the more than handful of CPG products that were there had no interest at all of ever going for a license. And they're, they have perfectly branded, beautiful packaging. You would never know it was not a legal product at all. And, um, you know, I asked a couple of them if they were going for licenses and they said, no, they were just going to sell in the black market. And with all these storefronts open, they have all the stores they need to fill to sell their products too. So, um, yeah, it's it's it's. I wrote an article about it. It really, honestly, is a two, uh, two economy system here. Like there's the underground market because it's a very big under. Well, it's always has been, but uh, it used to just be you know flour coming from the west coast or wherever uh, into the market. But now there's product. And they're bringing all that product out from California and the West Coast. And um, and I'm familiar with the brands because that's what I study. You know, I look at all the time. So I know those brands that are coming through here that I see in the stores are all California, Oregon, Washington, 
brands. Uh, and then you mix it with the newcomers coming into the market in New York City. So it's as if you're going to, uh, you know, a regular pop-up uh, market where people are selling their own little Etsy products. I mean, it's not like this hasn't been happening for years, right? But it's... there hasn't been products out there, edibles and brownies and, you know, it's just there's so many products out there. It's crazy. So anyway, so that's what's happening here. And um I mean, really, the OCM has a lot of work just getting New York City up and running in the whole this whole area. So it it depends. Honestly, I think twenty twenty three could be a good year, though, to yeah. you know to to get our neck of the woods back on track. Um, just yeah. if, you know, if the Second Circuit does agree with the state, then that opens it up. Um, the other option that they have is when they release permanent, full, annual, whatever you want to call the non-equity or conditional licenses, maybe that's the solution is, well, your card licenses still have to wait, or as card applicants still have to wait, but, you know, someone who's applying for a, a, a standard dispensary license, they're going to fill that, you know, fill that gap. Because so, they're not they're not waiting for state funding to for build outs and leases and I again I don't know how how the states but how how the state's going to handle it or how OC, what what solution OCM is going to come up with um, so but the, it, you know, that could be one of them is the injunction also for just regular entrepreneurs not seeking a social equity license is no, it it's just it's just for the card licenses so that's oh. that's the workaround could be. Oh, it's just for the card license. And it's it's actually just for card license applicants. So there were two types of card applicants, right? One was nonprofits, which is what Housing Works was. And one was for individuals with, uh, they call them justice-involved individuals, right? Individuals with either themselves or a close family member who had a prior conviction. And the applicant was also a 10% ownership in a business with net profits for two years. So this only applies to the justice-involved individual applicants of the CARD program. If there were nonprofit applicants in Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Mid-Hudson, Brooklyn, those individuals could still be awarded a license in the enjoined region because the injunction only applies to the justice-involved population of applicants. Okay, so that that's hopeful. I mean, that we you could get things going just on regular licenses. Is there any is there any word when that opens up when those license applications open up? Uh, you need to have the regulations finalized. So public comment on the draft regs first draft of the regulations. The sixty day public comment period ended on February thirteenth. Um, they are now all those public comments will be reviewed by OCM. They have to revise the draft, the first draft revisions if they see fit, which in this circumstance, they I'm, I'm almost certain that they will. And then they have to republish the new regulations for another 45 day public comment period, take in all of those. And then after that, once the regulations are final, the regulations ultimately dictate what the application says, then so realistically, you know, late summer, early fall is when those applications, I, I think, will go live. But that's, you know, th they can accelerate that timeline. They can pass emergency orders. They can they might push it out even further. I mean, it's that's just a ballpark figure, which at this point seems 
close, but there's no way of of um, there, there there's no way of confirming that. Right, right. Okay, I didn't realize that 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 was only for the card holder. So I feel like that just seems a little bit more hopeful that we could get things up and running. Hopefully, we'll see some some action in that. So cool. Well, so nice to meet you, Joe. All okay. right, thanks, Pam. Have a great thanks, weekend. Jeff. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.